Welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Reese Bowen's Royal Spinous mystery series about a penniless English lady who's 34th in line to the British throne is well-placed for a surge in popularity with Meghan's marriage to Prince Harry. But this versatile author is not resting on her laurels. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Reese talks about her latest work, Two World War II Mysteries, and the one thing she's done more than any other that's helped make her a multiple award-winning, best-selling author. But before we talk to Reese, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find a full transcript of our chat, plus links to Reese's books and website, and details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Reese. Hello there, Reese, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Well, thank you very much. It's lovely chatting all the way to New Zealand. Yes, it is. Look, beginning at the beginning, was there a once-upon-a-time moment when you decided you wanted to write fiction? And if so, what was it? Um, well, if there was, I can't remember it because apparently my mother says that I started writing when I was four. Um, so since then, I made up stories for myself. I told stories to my brother. In my teens, I really wanted to be a movie star. And so I wrote scripts for myself in which I was always the tragic heroine, you know, and everybody cried at the end of it as she either died or took the veil and went into the convent or something. Um, but the, and um, then, so, you know, I've always written all my life. It never occurred to me that that would be my profession. It was just part of me, something I did. I made up stories. And um, when I found that I was actually writing books and people were paying me for them, that was a huge bonus. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I gather you did start out by doing a script at the BBC. Yes. Um, well, I, right after college, I went into the BBC and as a trainee and I soon found myself in the drama department and I was working in radio drama which was huge in those days you know I mean unfortunately it's dying out now but um in we had several uh we had several original plays per week on the BBC as well as serials and as well as sort of adaptations of other plays and I'd find myself working on a play and I'd think if I'd written that I don't think I would have ended it that way so I had an idea for a place, so I wrote it, walked down the hall to the head of drama with the bravado of a 22-year-old and said, I've just written this play. And about three days later, he called me in and he said, um, we really like this, we're going to do it. So that was my introduction to being a professional writer and pretty much ever since I've been a professional writer. So, um, And I think working... With plays to start with is a great training ground if you're going to write fiction later because with a play it's very important how you introduce the characters, how they get onto the scene, how they get off the, off the scene, how they convey their personality through their words. And so, you know, it's been a good training ground. So have you done quite a few scripts? 
Not many. I probably did four or five. Um, and then not for many years. And when a few years ago, when excuse me, <coughs> when a movie company wanted to do Her Royal Spinest, they said, would you like to write the script? I said, oh, no. You know, it's a different world. And um, I'm not in it anymore. So I'd much rather somebody who knew about scripts. Yeah, yeah. And has that um, has that actually made the screens yet? No, it um, uh, uh, an English movie company bought it and um, was going gangbusters with it. And then the person, the producer, who'd actually been the one that was keen on it, went to another company, and so it died a natural death. Unfortunately, this happens all the time, you know. But um, they had paid me a nice lot of money for it, so I'm not actually complaining too much. Yeah, actually, that that doesn't reduce that series of yours, your Royal Spinus, which is a, a hilarious series. For those who aren't so familiar, it's based around the penniless Lady Georgie, cousin of King George the Fifth, thirty fourth in line for the English throne, and it's set in the nineteen thirties. And I'm just wondering whether your movie and 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 the books themselves might enjoy a bit of a resurgence of interest in America with. Megan's marriage to Prince Harry this coming weekend. Uh, it would be interesting to see that, won't it? Especially just by pure coincidence, the new book that comes out in that series, which is the 12th book in the series, is called Four Funerals and Maybe a Wedding. Yeah, that... It has a lo <laughs> lovely picture of the bride on the cover. So I think, you know, a royal wedding can tie in very nicely to that. So was that planned that way or just sheer luck? It was just sheer luck. I mean, by the t when I'd written the book, when I was writing the book, we had no idea that Harry and Meghan were going to get married. So it's it, the timing's been very good. And um, what my publisher has done has printed these lovely wedding invitations to send out to everybody. Um, and um, also has told the bookstores where I'm going to be on my tour that they, they can buy a wedding cake and champagne for each of the tour stops. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, it sounds fantastic, actually. What a great way to launch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I did see a little mention on a website somewhere that um, you had married into a similarly distant royal line. Are you able to enlighten us further on that tantalising detail? I must say that some of the books seem to have quite a sense of insider knowledge with them. Well, I'm I'm not nearly as in line to the throne as Lady Georgie, I have to say. My husband's family is one of the very old English families. They actually go back to 800, they can trace it back to. And one of his great-grandmothers was one of the Welds of Lulworth. But now if you go back on both sides, his uh, mother's name was uh, Bede Cox. There were the Bede Coxes and the Sneed Coxes. And that's, that family goes back right in direct line to Edward III, who was a Plantagenet way back. But on the other side, his father's line uh, his grandmother Hammond, they, uh, she was linked to uh, the Earl of Somerset, who was Queen Jane Seymour's brother. His daughter married William Barfoot Hammond, and that was on that line too. So there's a, a tenuous royal link on both sides. But the family, until very recently, owned several stately homes. And um, his grandmother was born at Sutton Place, which was an absolutely gorgeous house, and was bought later by J. Paul Getty. His sister still lives in a beautiful 14th century manor house. So when we go to England, I do play at that life a bit. You know, I sit with people who have silly nicknames. We have one cousin who lives on my sister's estate, and her name is Puff. 
but she's really Lady Virginia, you know. So all that sort of thing is kind of fun. It's um, especially when you're it's not part of your normal life. When I'm there, I'm very much the observer, and I think the things they say, you know, they say these things, they don't realize what they're saying. They sort of say, "Oh, do you remember that joke we played on the butler that time?" and I write it down quickly. <laughs> And the funny thing is that they're all, um, they have this great sense of entitlement that, you know, God created the upper class and then he rested. And, um, you know, I've sat at a, a sherry party in the Cotswolds and the person who was giving the party said, my dears, do you know who's bought that house across the valley? And everybody said, oh, no, do tell. She said, my dears, he's a grocer. <laughs> and it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have mattered if he owned Safeway. To them, he was still a grocer, therefore not one of us. And so it's kind of fascinating to me because, you know, I live in America where everything is very egalitarian and you are what you make yourself. And to be in a society where it's assumed that you're somehow on a different rank because you were born on a different rank is rather interesting. Yes, and it does explain, that background certainly explains why there is a sense of an insider with those st stories, the Royal Spiner series, there is a sense of that you, you do understand how that, that world works. So that, that's great. And then, of course, you went to the other end of the tracks with Molly Murphy, didn't you? <laughs> well, yes, yeah, she was about as poor and humble as you could possibly get. Yeah. Um, and she came about because I went to Ellis Island. Um, I hadn't planned to write a book or anything. I just had a free afternoon in New York. So I hopped on the sightseeing boat and I went to Ellis Island. And I was completely unprepared for the overwhelming emotion I felt there. You know, I have no ancestors who came in that way. But I stood there just feeling the walls crying out to me saying, we've got such stories to tell. And, you know, this is a place of great joy and great sorrow. And so yeah. I and then standing there, you stand on Ellis Island and you look across at the Manhattan skyline. And you realize that people could have been that close to America, but never allowed to take that final step because they were not going to be allowed to be admitted. And I thought to myself, well, this is really the ultimate locked room mystery. And so I thought, who would I like to send here? And I thought, well, I know the Irish very well because um, uh, my husband's family part of it is, is Irish, uh, linked to the Earl of Dunraven, his Irish aristocracy. So I thought, I know the Irish well. And my half of my family is Welsh, so I know the Celts very well. So Molly became a young Irish woman who has to flee for her life. Yes, I love the setup where she goes to America under a false name because she faced great danger in Ireland and then immediately gets herself in a situation where she might be faced with deportation. So it's a great way to launch a series. And, and they got to 17 books. Are you still writing Mo Ron Molly Murphy now? Um, I've, I've said I've put her on hiatus. I won't say I'm done with her because um, I, I'm sure I've got more stories to tell. The big problem is Molly is now married. She has a child. And you have to ask yourself, if I was responsible for a young child, when would I put myself in harm's way? And under what circumstances would I do anything like that? And so it becomes more of a challenge to think of instances when she actually would go out and investigate or else, you know, help someone else with an investigation. So um, I, I probably will come back to her at least in maybe a novella or a short story. But the nice thing is that I'm writing some standalones that are very different from each other, and I have the chance to pretty much write what I want to. 
Now, I love my series. Series are great because you build up a fan base and those fans really look forward to the next book in the series and they know all the characters. They always say, you know, I love love Georgie, I love Queenie. I, you know, they, they look forward to going back into that world again. And I do too when I write it. But having the chance to write things that are not part of that world, that's that's a huge gift as well. Yes, actually. Well, that's a great way to introduce your most recent two books. And although, you, as you say, they are standalones, but they kind of work as a series because they're both set in World War Two. So the, there is a feeling of a similar time and, and place in Fairly Field and The Tuscan Child. They're both winning awards, and I must say that we haven't mentioned this yet, but along the way you've collected lots and lots of nominations and awards for, for pretty well all of the series. But what made you decide to move into World War Two? Well, I think I've always been fascinated with World War Two because I was born towards the end of it. I don't remember anything except sirens. I do remember sirens. But um, my whole family was touched by it for years. You know, my father came back from the army. Various uncles came back. Everybody, we were still rationed in England until 1953. So I grew up with rationing. And everywhere you walked in London, at least, there would be bomb sites. And those really weren't cleared till the late 50s or early 60s. So we were very conscious of the war and, and what had happened. And then I came to realize it was the last time when you had a clear sense of good versus evil. Any war or any confrontation we've had since then has been so tinged with gray. You know, Vietnam, Iraq, are we doing the right thing? Are we doing the wrong thing? Whereas World War II, everybody knew we must stop evil before it swallows the world. Everybody was prepared to do their part, however small it was. And everybody had this great sense of purpose and this great sense of we're all in this together. Let's beat them. And um, so it was a great time to write about because heightened emotions and heightened fears and bombings and starvation, all these things, you know, add to any sort of emotion in a story. And then I was surprised when I found out, because I'm writing the Royal Finest series and I've read an awful lot on um, King Edward VIII, who later became the Duke of Windsor. And then I read that he was a huge fan of Hitler and that Hitler yeah. was planning to use him as a puppet king. That's why they put they sent him off to the Bahamas because the Bahamas is just off the coast of America, and they obviously could, could they could patrol very well with submarines and keep him safe. But no, Hitler would like to have taken him, put him as a puppet king in England. And then I read that there was a whole group of aristocrats who um, wanted to aid aid Germany. It wasn't that they were, well, they were pro-German. They felt that Germany and England had a lot in common. Um, but their their aims in many ways were altruistic. They thought England couldn't possibly win. And they thought that if they stopped the war now and stopped an invasion, that Britain would be safe and Hitler would be nice to Britain and that all of the beautiful monuments would no longer be bombed, because at that stage Hitler was bombing cathedrals and, and every lovely sort of monument. So the fact that there was this secret ring of aristocrats who wanted to aid Hitler immediately made me think, oh, I bet there's a story there. So that's when I started off writing in Farley Field. Yes, and it sounds like there's plenty of backstory left for, is there a third one coming in the world in World War Two? Well, no, I've just actually, um, I've just finished the first drafts of next year's book and it's set in World War One. 
I just felt ah. I wanted to go and explore something else. So this is exploring um, the Women's Land Army in World War One. You know, these were young women who had worn corsets until then, who had their hair up in a big bun, who had never done any sort of manual work. And suddenly they go and work in the field. They have their hair cut. They take their corsets off. They wear bloomers. And they they plant the crops and they manage the plows just to keep the country fed. And that seemed like a fun thing to write about for me. And also the whole theme of the book is, is women banding together. Because as you know, in World War One, a whole generation of young men did not come back to England. There was, mm. if you were if you were a young woman at that age, your chances of marriage were one in ten. Um, so I thought to myself, well, what happens if you get a small community, and none of the men are coming back? You're going to have no blacksmith, no carter, no postman, no man owns the pub. What do the women do? How do they band together and say, okay, we can make this work? So. That's part of the background of what this story is about. It's all also about one woman's tragedy and loss and healing through finding a garden full of herbs that she uses as a healing garden. Oh, sounds lovely. Sounds amazing. I can't tell you the title because I want to call it The Healing Garden and my publisher isn't so thrilled with that. So it might be something else. So it's all very early stages. I must say I hadn't realised that there was a woman's army in World War One. I, I don't think. I Land Army. I, th- I I was familiar with World War Two, but uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, it started in about 1917. It was when it got to a stage where they realised that the country would starve because there was no one to plant the crops and harvest the crops, mm. and so and so they they um, they put out they put out flyers for young women to come and help. And they were a very mixed bag too. You had some who were servants who said, "I'll never go back into service again." There were some who were daughters of people who worked on the land. There were widows who said, I don't want to sit at home all by myself grieving. I want to do something positive. And then there were like our heroine in the book, who's an upper class young girl who leaves her family because they won't accept the young man she wants to marry. And she goes and works in the land army. So, you know, they were a very mixed bag, but they were they became very sisterly, a great band of sisters. Yes, yes. Just looking back a little to to your, your the beginnings of your career, I think that you started in writing children's stories, and now you are embarked on a another initiative, starting the Red Dragon Academies series with your daughter Claire Broyles, which is a middle gra- school grade fantasy series. Now, how did this one get birth? Um, well, Claire and I were up at a cabin in the snow once, and we were talking about how much we missed Harry Potter. And we sort of started talking about, I'd like to do a series set in Wales because, you know, obviously it's where my mother's family comes from. And I'd taken Claire to see Conway Castle and Carnarvon Castle and things. And we said, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if there was a parallel universe there? And then we started talking about it. And we realized that we've got, we've got a story. The big problem is we're both so busy. We've done that first book. We have a second book planned. We have never found the time to write it. She's incredibly busy doing about four jobs as well as having children and um, and I'm writing two books a year and last year I did three books and said never again so I don't know when we're going to get back to it which is a shame because we had such fun doing the first one we would yes we would take parts of it and she'd say well I'd like to handle the scene that takes place in such and such and then I'd go ahead and then we'd swap scenes and actually when you read it now I can't tell which bits were hers and which were mine it worked very well yeah. Oh, that's great. 
Moving to a more general focus away from specific books to your wider career, is there one thing you've done more than any other that's been the secret of your success? Um, well, I suppose if I can look at one thing, I would say um, I've tried to make each book better than the last one. Uh, you know, if you write a series, the publisher, publisher are very happy if you turn in the same book over and over and over. Um, but I, each time I've tried to make it a better book um, and I've tried to do something, I've tried to stretch the limits and um, to do something that's, you know, outside of outside of the box a bit with each book. And uh, so I think that's something that I'm proud of, that I do get lots of reviews that say, well, this is your best book yet each time. And I think, well, that's nice to know that I am still raising the bar each time. I guess it keeps it interesting for you as well, too, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I could turn out... You know, I could turn out a Royal Spinus book in which, you know, something happens and she goes to meet the Queen and then there's a body, etc. I could do that every single time and it would be quite amusing. But I like to send her to different places. I like to tackle things that are slightly different and di difficult. Like in some of the last books in the Royal Spinus series, we've had a friend, Belinda, who has um, become pregnant and had to decide whether to have an abortion or not. And you know, things that really mm. would have affected young girls at that yeah, time. Yeah, 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 that's great. Look, later, I wondered actually when we were talking about The Tuscan Child, whether that had partly been inspired by your visiting Italy, because I, I noticed that later this month you are actually holding a writing workshop in Tuscany, and it's the second time you've done this, I think. That sounds absolutely marvellous. Um but tell us a little bit about how that came about. Oh, well, yeah, that came about, um, yeah, so just over two years ago, um, two professors from Arizona State University who run um, summer program in Italy came to me and said, we were wondering whether you possibly might have time to teach a writing workshop in a lovely old farmhouse now turned into a hotel in Chianti in Tuscany. And um, it has a swimming pool and beautiful grounds. And, of course, we have lovely meals and we go wine tasting and we go on tours. And um, would you possibly have time to do this? And I went, hmm, let me think. Yes, I, yes, I do think I'd have time. So, <laughs> so um, I did it and it really was lovely. And the last group bonded very well and we had a lovely time together. And I'm going back in two weeks and um, this time it would be interesting because last time it was all women and this time there are three men signed up as well. One of them's coming from Singapore or Hong Kong, I think. So, you know, all over and, and both men and women. So it will be a different dynamic, but it should be a lot of fun. It really is. It's a, it's a beautiful setting because it, it's an old farmhouse. So you still have like the big brick oven where they used to bake the bread and things like that. But the rooms are, you know, have very nice modern bathrooms now. And there's a swimming pool. And it's just outside a, a delightful little town where we'll, we walk for some of our special dinners. So it really is. It's, it's very nice. And the uh, writing tuition, is it focused on the mystery genre? It was last time. Um, I think that this time I called it Novel in a Week, which is a rather ambitious thing to call it. But I wanted people who had always thought they wanted to write a novel or people who got started on a novel and then floundered and thought, I don't know where to go now. So it's going to be a lot on how I get my idea from idea to premise to plot 
and structure. Sounds fascinating. At the end of a 10-day course, hopefully these people can go home and say, right, now I really can tackle this because I know where I'm going. So that's what I want to do. And if they're all in the mystery genre, then we will focus more on mysteries. If not, we will just focus on the novel because essentially every novel that you write is a mystery because you, you want to know what happens next. So, um, you know, I think I'm looking forward to it a lot. It will, it will be a lot of fun. And you asked about The Tuscan Child, which is the book that I've just written this year, um, which incidentally is coming up to selling 200,000 copies so far. So that's pretty nice too. And I knew I wanted to write that when we went the last time. I've been to Tuscany several times before, and I thought it would be a lot of fun to set a book in two time periods and to have two stories running parallel. When you learn a little bit in one story, which aids you in the other story until you get to the end and then they come together. So that's what I wanted to do. So I knew when I was in Tuscany that I was going to be an observer. And everywhere I went, I thought, okay, how do you make this pasta? And what's in what's the ingredient in this sauce? And what does that smell like? And what's blooming on that fence? And when, when are the vines ready to be picked? You know, all these things all the time I was making notes on because I knew I wanted them in a book. So it was very helpful. It sounds wonderful. Look, no lesser writer than Louise Penny has described you as one of the best fiction writers of the day, which must have left a little glow in your heart when you read that. Do you think that critics perhaps underestimate humorous mysteries, the sort of genre fiction that you write, because you make it seem so effortless that that it's, it's perhaps easy to underestimate the amount of dedication and skill that goes into it? Um, well, first of all, Louise Penny is very kind. She's she's ha- actually a very close friend of mine. In fact, I'm going to be seeing her in about 10 days in England, and we're going to have fun there before I go to Italy. Um, but, um, uh, I, yeah, I think, I think you're quite right that the cosier mystery has never been taken seriously. Um, I was nominated, in Farley Field was nominated for an Edgar this year, which was really wonderful because the... Edgars are normally all men and all very dark. Um, you know, for some reason, people seem to think that the darker something is, the more valuable and the more literary it is. And I don't understand mm. that because I've always felt I've always felt what Agatha Christie said, which was, "You expect to find evil and violence in the back streets of a city, but when something rocks the foundation of a small community, St. Mary Mead, um, then." everybody's values are shaken to their core and it's something really horrible and unexpected that someone within a community like a small village could could be violent could be a killer so i think you know our our books are much more valid they're much more true to real life i think in many ways yes yeah yeah look turning to reese as a reader the series is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and we focus on people who've either written a lot of books or done series books. Mm-hmm. Um, have you got any favourites that you binge read yourself? Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, you saw the stacks of things in my ro- in the various rooms in the house and my to-be-read tiles. <laughs> um, the strange thing is that if I'm, the ones I'm going to tell you are all close friends of mine. Um, obviously Louise, Louise Penny, I think her books are magnificent. I'm up to date and I've just gone back and start re- started rereading Still Life the other day because I couldn't quite remember all the details. So she is able, I think when you look at her, and we were talking about people not taking cozy mysteries of Siri, mm. seriously. Mm. She's one who, she writes about a small town in Quebec 
full of quirky people, a village green, a little bistro, a woman with a duck. She writes about all these quirky, cozy things. And yet she debuts number one on the New York Times every time, which says something. It says that the, the average reader wants a place where they feel safe. Yeah. And, um, and that's what, this, that's what um, Three Pines does. And um, her books always deal with moral grayness as opposed to awful villains. You can every everyone in her books, from the villain to the hero, you can see you can see real people in them. I think that's why they're so popular. So Louise is one. Another one who's a close friend of mine is Deborah Crombie. I love her series. I've followed it since the beginning. Actually, I followed it way before I knew her. I was reading those books, and then when I met her, that was an added bonus. Um, she has um, Inspector Kincaid and Gemma James in London, and there's, I think, 70, or a lot of those books now anyway. But they're um, police procedurals, but a lot of character and a lot of, again, moral ambiguity in them. Mm. Uh, so mm-hmm. And then a third friend of mine, who I really have to read all the time, uh, who writes fairly similarly to mine, is Jacqueline Winspear and her Maisie Dobbs series. Oh, yes. Set in the 19, <laughs> set in the 1930s, you know, a, a woman detective in the 1930s who still bears the scars of World War One too. I, think. I find those books fascinating. Well, that sounds wonderful. Look, circling around from the beginning to the end, at this stage in your career, if you were doing it all again, what would you change, if anything? Well, I certainly wouldn't change where I am now. I mean, when you think my first book in Mysteries, which was Evans Above, had a print run of 2,500 um, and probably, you know, was read by, was put in a few libraries, and that was it. And that really, without much publisher backing or help, I have come to this stage where I've won, what, 18 awards to date, and I sell an awful lot of books. So, you know, it's a very satisfying place to be. If there's one thing I would change, I think, it's the titles of the Constable Evans series. Um, you know, they all had very clever pun titles, Evans Above, Evan Help Us, Evan Requires. Um, and um, I think the books to start with were pretty cosy. But as the series went on, they started tackling more difficult subjects. You know, I had one of the books in which there was a Pakistani family and um, the terrorism threat and things. And um, an- another book in which there was a, a woman in a, a abused women's shelter. And I think by having those very clever punny titles, I probably kept away a lot of serious readers who might have enjoyed the books. And maybe some of the people who picked them up for the punny title would have said, well, this isn't really funny and light. It's really quite serious. So I don't think I did the stories a a, a real service by those titles. Sure, sure, yes. What is next for Reese as a writer? You've mentioned your World War One project any any other new projects under development or what have you got ahead i've got to start as soon as as soon as i come back from the, the tuscany trip i've got to start writing the next world's finest and obviously if the one before before is called four funerals and maybe a wedding <laughs> we are to hope that there's a wedding at the end of that book and so and so i'm already planning ahead to the honeymoon in the next book and i I asked readers on my Facebook page, well, where do you think they should go for their honeymoon? And I had suggestions for literally everywhere in the world, um, you know, including places like Bhutan. And I'm not going to take them to Bhutan because I haven't been there and I have to go and do research. Um, so I'm thinking of taking them to Kenya, to the Happy Valley, where, you know, there was that community of, of 
upper-class aristocratic English people who lived this very, very naughty life with drugs and sex and everything. And I thought it'd be rather fun to put Georgie in the middle of them, you know, Georgie who's so innocent, who has led such a sheltered life, and, you know, what on earth is going on here? Why is everybody changing bedrooms all the time? So I <laughs> think that's great. quite a fun book. <laughs> do you always <laughs> like to go to the places that you're writing about? I do, yeah. Um, the, this, the, Kenya would be the exception because I have wanted to go on a safari for a long, long time, and I haven't managed to do it yet. But um, I've been reading a lot of background books about this Happy Valley set, and I have the movie of Out of Africa, which I will watch 300 times, (laughs) which isn't hard because it's got Robert Redford in it. Um, You know, so the one thing you don't get when you don't go yourself is all those little nuances. Like when I'm in Tuscany, what does this smell Mm -hmm. like when you walk past that kitchen? And what's that? What's that bird that's sitting on the fence there? And how does it sound when the men are arguing in the, in the town square and their voices echo back from the tall buildings? You know, all those things that you can really bring a place to life. Yes, so I yeah. just have to do my best this time. But, you know, Georgie and Darcy are on their honeymoon. Perhaps they won't notice the scenery <laughs> too much, I'm thinking. Uh, Reese, you sound like you're quite an extroverted person. You break the idea of all, all writers being introvert. Where can readers find you online? Do you, do you interact with your readers quite a bit? Oh, I do, yes. Um, and I'm, I'm a total extrovert, too. If I'm, if I'm on my own for two days, I start talking <laughs> to the grocery clerks, you know. Um, yeah. So I have a website, and that's obviously that's reesbowen.com, all one word. You can find me on Facebook, which is www.facebook.com slash author, all one word. I'm on Twitter, at reesbowen, and I'm part of a wonderful group blog. I don't know if you've checked this one out at all for Jungle Red Writers. There are eight of us. There are eight of us, so so it's junglewriters.com, all one word. There are eight of us, all fairly well-known writers. There's myself, Deborah Crombie, Julia Spencer-Fleming, Hank Philippi Ryan, Hallie Efron, Jen McKinley, Ingrid Thoft, and Lucy Burdett. So there's eight of us, and we take turns to host the blog, and we talk about anything from our grandmother's recipes to problems we're having writing our next book um, and we host guests for you know various various other rest guests come on there so it's a very lively blog to be on because it's something different every day and um, I really enjoy doing that because it keeps me it's like having a group of sisters that you chat with every day so that's, Sounds wonderful. that's very good for me too well look it's been great talking we have pretty well run out of time so um but it has been wonderful talking and uh if you have another Italian work shop maybe i'll get there next year <laughs> oh wouldn't that be lovely yes actually the year before yeah, last year they did have someone from australia so you're, you're a little bit closer in australia i think yeah that's right that's lovely reese it's been a pleasure talking to you and we'll watch your coming career with interest well thank you jenny very much okay, bye thanks for listening to the joys of binge reading podcast You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at 
dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com. Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right, and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.